wow, what a day. What a day. And I don't just mean the day like November 1st. And by the way, how did it become November 1st? Is anybody else just kind of like, what? But you know what that means. Here's the great thing about today being November 1st. One of the great things. 2020 is almost over, y'all. I mean, I'm just saying, it's a good day. You, you don't even know whether to clap for that. You're like, yeah, yeah, is it though, really? I mean, we think it's good. Maybe, anyway, it is, I promise you. But it is indeed, indeed a great day. And I, I want to tell you, today is a little different as a church. Today is a little different uh, as a sermon but it's one that I think is going to be okay. Turn to your neighbor right now and tell him, it's going to be okay. <clears throat> it's going to be okay. Here's why I know that. I read the ending of the book. We know who wins. And it ain't got nothing to do with Tuesday, y'all. We know who wins. So, anyway, <clears throat> I'm going to have a sip of water. It crossed my mind to put something besides water in here, but I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I said, get thee behind me, Satan. <clears throat> anyway, when I was in college, my home church in Houston took a mission trip to Mexico City. We partnered with a local church there in Mexico City, and did service projects out in some of the government housing projects on the outskirts of Mexico City. If you've never been to Mexico City, it is a massive, massive metropolis. We were on the outskirts. It took us an hour and a half by rundown school bus to get to these projects every day to work. And we would, we would play soccer with the locals. We'd do kind of a vacation Bible school every day for the kids in these projects. We'd go door to door. We, we shared Christ with people one-on-one. -on -one. We even got to celebrate baptism with some of these folks in their newfound faith. It was an amazing experience. But at the end of the week, we were coming back home to Houston, and our flight brought us back into Intercontinental Airport about 10 o'clock or so at night. It was late. And it was one of those trips where you're tired, you're dirty, you just want to get home, but you've got to go, you know, wait for your luggage at luggage check and luggage claim and then get through customs and everything. And because my mom and my brothers were out of town that weekend, a friend of mine gave me a ride home. And when I finally got to the front door, it was about midnight. I was exhausted. You know that kind of tired where you go, do I shower or do I just go to bed? That, that kind of tired. And I had elected just to go to bed. Well, when I stuck my key in the front door, I went to turn it to unlock the door, and it didn't work. And I thought, well, that's kind of weird. So I, I turned the key again, and I couldn't get it to go. And so I got very, very technical, and I jiggled it. That's right. I got jiggy with it. And I, I jiggled it, and it still didn't work. I was going, you got to be kidding me. So I walked around to the back door to see if maybe it was unlocked. Locked. All of the windows on the ground floor of our house, locked. So at midnight, I find myself shimmying up the fence beside our garage so I can climb up onto the roof of our house and go to an upstairs window in the upstairs bathroom that I shared with my brothers, hoping against hope that it was somehow unlocked. 
And when I went to open the door, it blessedly and mercifully slid open. I was so, I was like, I'm going to bed. And so I, you know, crawled in, stuck my leg through the window, kind of had to let myself down and feel around for the, for the toilet seat so I could get in. Thankfully, surprisingly, the toilet seat was down in a bathroom full of boys. Who knew that that would happen? And I got in. I was in. The air conditioning hit me. And I went downstairs, got my luggage off of the front porch, threw it there by the front door, closed it, and went upstairs and went to bed. The next day, my mom and brothers came home, and we were catching up. They asked about the trip, and we were just kind of, you know, talking. I said, hey, by the way, my key didn't work last night. I had to go in through the upstairs bathroom window. And my mom said, I am so sorry. I forgot to get you a key. While you were gone, we were robbed, and I had to change all the locks. I am so sorry. That just, I said, we were robbed? What are you talking about? This is the first I'd heard of this. She goes, we were robbed. Somebody broke into the house. I said, were you here? I mean, were Pat and Gil here? What's up? And they said, everything was fine. They took a few things, but we actually know who did it. I said, we know who did it? She goes, yeah. You remember when we were having the house re-roofed a couple of weeks ago? One of the crew saw where we keep the spare key in the garage, and he helped himself to the key, came into the house, and took whatever he felt like taking. Now, he didn't take a whole lot. We didn't have a lot of like high-pressure, high-dollar valuables, but he, he took some jewelry that belonged to my mom that was not necessarily financially valuable, but it had belonged to her grandmother, so it was sentimentally and emotionally priceless to her. Now, I told you that to ask you this. How many of you have ever been robbed? Can I just see a show of hands if you've been robbed? That is a horrible experience, isn't it? I mean, you, you feel, when you get robbed, you feel vulnerable in a way that most of us never even think about being vulnerable. You feel, you feel violated. You feel you feel mad, you feel angry, you feel sad. It's just, a, it's just a bad, bad place to be. The reality is, for every single one of us, there's a thief in our house. There's a thief in our house. Not necessarily where you live, certainly not in our church, but there's a thief in our house culturally. And unless you and I, followers of Christ, are incredibly and intentionally careful and prayerful, attentive and vigilant, this thief will absolutely rob us blind of the liberties and the freedoms, the fundamental freedoms that we enjoy, that we so, so often take for granted. This past week, I went to the poll and I voted. I love to vote. I, I love getting to go. And this week, when I stepped into the voting booth, something happened that had never happened to me before. I stepped into the voting booth and I thought about the day that I had stepped onto the beach in Normandy, France. Four years ago, my family and I were there and we walked on Utah Beach. Juno Beach, though those beaches where over 70 years ago, 
a, a group of soldiers about the same age as my kids stormed the beaches to push back and fight Nazi fascism. And I thought about those soldiers as I stood in the voting booth. I thought, what they did means I can do what I do right now. And, and they're in the voting booth. I just said a word of prayer. I said a prayer of thanksgiving. And I have to tell you, I, 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 I do pay attention. I know what's going on. I watch the news. I, I know we got some problems. And I love my country. I love that I get to live in a place where I have a voice and can speak into the future of what will happen. But the fact of the matter is, we should never take that for granted. We should never, ever forget that for all of our problems, and they're real, for all of our problems, this is still the last best hope for the world on this planet. That's just a reality. And we have a thief in the house. Now, some of you are going to kind of be a little uncomfortable just for a second. And I, and I get it. I want you to know that. In 23 years as a church, we have never, say never, never, never endorsed a candidate. We have never endorsed a party. And we're not starting today. So everybody just kind of go. But we do talk about culture. We do talk about philosophy because it informs every part of our world. This message series that we've been in for the last few weeks, Clarity in the Chaos. We've been looking at this, and our guidepost has been a passage of Scripture in Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians chapter 2, the Bible says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Last week, we made the statement of fact that culture, culture in the world, culture in a nation, in a state, in a city, in our communities, culture is at its core a spiritual issue. Culture is a spiritual issue. And so it's imperative. It's, it's our responsibility as followers of Christ. Paul says right there, see to it. You, it's your responsibility. You make sure that you are not taken captive by deceptive and hollow philosophies. We have a thief in our house. Now, Last week, I also talked to you a little bit about the Russian Orthodox Church at the turn of the 1900s, the beginning of the 20th century, before Bolshevism and communism and socialism and Marxism took over in Russia, the Russian Orthodox Church had been so co-opted by the corruption of the czarist regime that when the Marxists came to power in 1917, the church was completely impotent to do anything about it. As a matter of fact, the church was swept away with all of the old power structures, the old powers that used to be. 
So that by 1939, in the Soviet Union, a landmass 74% bigger than the United States. Think about it. That's a, that's a big old space. That'd be a great ranch. By 1939, there were fewer than 300 churches. In 1917, at the beginning of the revolution, there were more than 50,000. In 22 years, that is the blink of an eye, the church was all but eradicated. And actually, Russia is a great place to begin this conversation because the thief that is in our house is the grandson, is the granddaughter of Karl Marx himself. Now, Marx was a fascinating, if highly flawed, philosopher. Marx was born to wealth and privilege in Germany, but he migrated to London. And it was from the friendly confines of capitalist London that he conspired with a guy by the name of Frederick Engels to concoct and dream up this economic system that became known as Marxism, socialism, communism, that they're all kissing cousins of one another. Now, I, I have to tell you this, before we go any further, part of this message today, part of it, is going to feel like a class. And in advance, I apologize. And, and I need you to know something else. This is not a sermon that I got really like giddy to give. Like, I can't wait. As a matter of fact, I've been trying not to preach this sermon but I feel called and led by God. And it's my prayer that God will use this time to open our minds and our hearts, to, to quicken our hearts and our hands, to be the feet and voice of Christ in a lost and dying world. We're commissioned to be salt and light. Salt to preserve, to stave off decay. That, that's what salt was used for in Jesus' time. Have you ever had a, a, meat, a, a freezer go out on you, maybe in your garage or in your house? We had this happen. A friend of mine invited me to go hunting to, to, to hunt Axis deer. And, and I said, man, I'd love to. My, my family needs meat for the winter. I'm there. So went, harvested an Axis, took it to the processor, brought the meat home, put it in the freezer for the year. And it was less than two months later, a breaker threw in our garage and when we didn't even know it, the freezer went out completely. We walked downstairs one morning in July to an aroma that I won't try and describe to you. It, it, was, it was the smell of death is what it was, which is exactly what it was because the meat in our freezer was no longer frozen. It was decaying. In Jesus' day and age, they didn't have refrigeration. They used salt to preserve fish, to preserve meat. And so when Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, he was saying, it is your job. Like God said in Jeremiah, pray for the peace and the prosperity of the city where I have sent you into exile. Be the salt, be the preserving agent to stave off the decay of the world and be light. Be light in a dark world. Give people guidance. Use the word of God to show people how to walk, how to live. This is our job. 
And I've got to say this also. If you're younger, and by younger, I don't mean just than me. That's no big deal. The bar is on the floor. But I mean, if you're like between 13 and 30 years old, I'm begging you to lean in. Maybe you're watching online later on, whatever it may be. I'm begging you to lean in because this thief that is in our house is coming after you more than anybody else. So it's imperative that we understand this. This is one of those sermons that, that I promise you we're going to get to the hope of Christ. I promise you. But before we get there, we've got to deal with reality. As followers of Christ, we have to understand the world in which we live if we are to live authentically as Christians in this world. We have to do a little cultural scouting, some reconnaissance to understand what's going on around us so that we can speak into it, so that we can be salt and light. Make no mistake about it, this is ultimately about the hope of the world that is Jesus. I, I, I do kind of feel like, I'm not, I'm not like him, but I feel like the Bible says Paul felt when he was in the city of Athens in Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 17, it says that Paul was deeply disturbed as he walked around Athens and saw all of the idols in the city. That, that's, that's my heart. That's where I am today. I, I'm deeply disturbed by this thief that's in our house. And as I said, the thief is the grandson and the granddaughter of Karl Marx. Marx viewed the world through the lens of class conflict. That he was, he was ultimately a, a philosopher, an economist, and a historian. And he viewed all of history through the lens of class conflict. The haves against the have-nots. The bourgeoisie against the proletariat. If somebody ever tells you, man, those shoes are bougie, that, that's where that comes from. I'm not saying that they're a Marxist if they say that. I'm just saying that's where it comes from. And, and so Marx viewed capitalism and the Western world as the latest historical iteration that would, by definition, ultimately collapse in a bloody revolution, resulting in a utopian, classless society. This is, this is Marxism in a nutshell. And I want you to know, I'm going out of my way to represent Marxism accurately and not, not rip it, but, but to represent what Marx actually believed and actually put out there. And if you, you study and look at Marxism, then you understand that it is absolutely incompatible with a biblical worldview. Matter of fact, Marx was an avowed atheist. Remember the chart that we've been looking at throughout this series, Clarity in the Chaos? Remember the, the thoughts, feelings, and ideas chart? Just real quickly, I want to flash it up here and just kind of make sure that we, we remember it. If you haven't seen this, this builds on where we've been over the last few weeks. But we've said that thoughts and feelings and ideas like Marxism, socialism, communism, those things can come from anywhere. But we have to filter them through the truth of Scripture. And some things make it through the filter, make it through the lens. Some things we have to eject. But we look at it through the lens of Scripture. Now, Marxism is a belief system. It is a worldview. 
And communism has been proven historically and empirically to not work. It doesn't work. As a matter of fact, communism may be ushered in through a revolution. It may be ushered in at the ballot box. But the only time communism is sustained is at the end of a gun. That's it. I had the opportunity a few years ago to go to Cuba, one of the greatest experiences of my life. I had a chance to go to a Cuban pastor's conference. Now, you want to talk about enlightening? I have never been more blown away by the joy, the courage of these Christian pastors under the thumb of communistic rule in Cuba continuing the work of Jesus, moving it forward. And it was on this trip to Cuba that I remember just shaking my head. These pastors who are mandated by the government now, that if more than 20 people come to a church, they have to split and go into another organization in somebody else's house. 20 people, that's it. And this is state-mandated. The state of Cuba mandates that you have to get permission for the simplest of exercises. Our guide told us the story of his in-laws who lived in government housing. And finally, after more than 60 years, one day their, their toilet just gave way. It, it, just, it just crumbled. And I don't know if anybody was on it or what happened, but some, it just crumbled. Well, they, they applied for the permission to buy a new toilet to the state. And they waited weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. The next time you go to get a driver's license, you just go, God, thank you, I'm not in Cuba. They waited weeks to get permission to buy a new toilet. When the state did not respond, they bought one off the black market. Under the cover of night, moved it up to the apartment, installed it. The next afternoon, there was a knock on the door. It was the Cuban police. They walked in with a hammer, walked to the new toilet, and crushed it in their apartment, leaving them with a hole in the floor to do their business. This is Marxism and communism because a neighbor told on them. The most well-paid professionals in Cuba are not doctors or lawyers or tech executives. The most well-paid professionals in Havana are police, the police who monitor and keep an eye and tell the people what they can and cannot do and can and cannot say. This is Marxism. Anyone who would vote willingly for a socialist, for a communist in the United States of America, we can disagree, that's fine. I'm not, I'm not coming after you personally, but I would suggest to you this. You ought to spend 45 minutes in Havana in July trying to find air conditioning. That is the end game of Marxism, socialism, and communism. And the thief in our house is neo-Marxism, new age, cultural Marxism. We know that the economic system doesn't work, but that doesn't mean that there aren't people who are trying to bring it back. Neo-Marxism is a natural result. Neo-Marxism is this 
belief of the oppressed versus the oppressor, that that defines reality and history. Neo-Marxism is alive and well. You can trace the kind of the, the debut or the debutante ball of neo-Marxism back to the 1960s. It, it goes, the, it has beginnings much earlier than that. Obviously, Marx lived in the 1800s. But it was really in the 1960s that neo-Marxism had its coming out party. That, that neo-Marxists began teaching in our colleges. That neo-Marxists began promulgating this belief that life is only about class struggle and the ultimate aim is a classless society. Here are the beliefs essentially of neo-Marxism. It is rooted in relativism, relativism that we've talked about. There's no absolute truth. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. It's relative to the individual who holds it. Truth is in the eye of the beholder. Critical theory, critical theory. You may have heard something lately about critical race theory. This is a offshoot of neo-Marxism. Neo-Marxism believes in hierarchies of power only. It is all about power. Who's in charge, who controls, who dominates. It's rooted in materialism. Marx was an avowed materialist. He, he believed that material and materialism drove every part of human behavior. And it is ultimately about an equality of outcomes. Equality of outcomes. Karl Marx famously said that religion, what we're doing here, religion is the sigh of the oppressed culture. It is the opium of the people. That's Marxism. That's neo-Marxism. So my faith in Christ, my relationship with God Almighty it's an addiction. It's an opiate. It's something I use just to numb me from my oppression or to keep somebody else oppressed. That's what Marx believed. That's what neo-Marxists operate under. Also, it's very important that you understand this. Just because someone is a relativist, just because someone operates in this world doesn't mean that they're a full-blown card-carrying Marxist. It just means that they share some similarities with him. It, it means that they share a belief system. Now, some of them, man, they, they love Marx. They think Marx is the greatest thing since sliced bread, put some peanut butter and jelly on him. Neo-Marxism. This is what Marx said about his relationship with Frederick Engels, his co-conspirator. He said, when Engels and I first joined the secret communist society, isn't that interesting? It was secret. When we first joined the secret communist society, we made it a condition that everything tending to encourage superstitious belief in authority was to be removed from the statutes. Superstitious belief in authority. Like scripture. Like God. You, you can't be a Marxist and believe in God. Because... The state ultimately makes the call, not God. We, we relinquish that right to the state. And, and so we have to understand that neo-Marxism, new age cultural Marxism is alive and well. It is a clear and present danger 
in this world. Here's the thing that struck me, and this, this, this hit home for me. In most, in over 90% of the colleges that you and I hope our kids get into, this is the dominant philosophy being taught, being led, being mentored. Another, another expression of neo-Marxism is this thing called identity politics. Identity politics, not, not what we talked about last week or that we're continuing this week where our identity in Christ drives our politics, but the identity politics of the world that is divisive and demographically driven, this is what the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy says about identity politics a wide range of political activity and theorizing founded in the shared experiences of injustice of members of certain social groups. Rather than organizing solely around belief systems, because there is no belief system, there's no truth, programmatic manifestos or party affiliation, identity political formations typically aim to secure the political freedom of a specific constituency marginalized within its larger context. That's, that's the standard encyclopedia, Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. It's not the standard, but it is Stanford. So this, this idea that, that society and politics breaks down into the oppressed versus the oppressor, this is the natural inheritance of Marxism. Now, Marxism was was a response to realism, to the Enlightenment. Just, just for kicks, let's look at the Enlightenment. It, realism, which existed and flourished in the 1700s and really has vestiges that are alive and well even today, but especially in the 1700s, this was when the United States was born. It was rooted in truth, like reason, science, scripture, hierarchies not of power but of merit, and equality of opportunity as opposed to an equality of outcomes. You see, that's the thing you have to listen for. When people talk about equality, are they talking about an equality of outcome or an equality of opportunity? If they're talking about an equality of outcomes, that's Marxism. And who decides what's equal? So you have to listen discerningly the, the, the quote that I think represents realism and the Enlightenment comes from the United States Declaration of Independence. All men are created equal. All humanity. Now, that doesn't mean that racism doesn't exist. That doesn't mean that there aren't injustices. Yes, there are. As a matter of fact, when George Floyd was murdered by a white police officer, this church took a hard stand against it and said it is evil, period, hard stop. But the problem with branding all of a culture, all of a nation as evil is that you get a sin without a sinner. You see, the Enlightenment, Scripture, tells us that the human heart is deceptive above all. And the only thing that has ever changed the human heart is the love of God. It is Christ and Christ alone. So we have to call out 
this neo-Marxism when we see it. Don't, it, it can't be coddled or accommodated. We've got to call it out. I, I want to just very, very quickly compare and contrast neo-Marxism and Christianity. Neo-Marxism, rooted in humanism, humanity is the center of existence of the universe. Relativism, we've already talked about that. Number three, cancel culture. Cancel culture. Again, this is about power. If you say something I disagree with, you're out. You're done. Blah, blah. Cancel culture. Number four, statism. Statism. This is where the state, the government, becomes the final arbiter of right and wrong, legal and illegal. This is socialism. This is neo-Marxism over and against Christ, over and against the Christian faith. Where Marxism begins in humanism, the Christian faith begins in our origin and our purpose in God. Psalm chapter 139. This is the word of God. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. You were a soul accounted for by the King of kings and the Lord of lords before you were conceived. So at the moment of conception, you're real. You're a human being and you're a soul. This is why the church traditionally draws a line in the sand on abortion. Not because it's the unpardonable sin, it is not. But it is the taking of a life. You cannot reconcile that with that. That's not a political statement, that's a spiritual statement. That's a biblical statement. And so, yeah, we draw a hard line. That's a hill that we'll die on. That's what we believe. I also believe this. I believe that there are good people who disagree with that. I do. I disagree with them, but I think there are good people who disagree with that. I'm not going to demonize somebody who doesn't believe Scripture like I believe Scripture. I'm going to disagree. I'm going to argue. I'm going to do my homework. I'm not going to demonize another person because they disagree. That's not biblical. But our origins, our purposes are found in God, not in and of ourselves. Number two, number two where neo-Marxism is relativistic, we believe in truth from God. Truth comes from God. He is the arbiter of truth, of reality, because he invented reality. He was real before anything else was real. He has always been and he always will be. Number three, instead of the cancel culture and power of neo-Marxism, we believe in grace 
and service. Grace and service. One of the things that I think is so fascinating about neo-Marxism and cancel culture and all this stuff, there's zero margin of error. You can't ever be wrong about something. If you're wrong one time, you're dead in the water. As opposed to the Christian faith that says, hey, the wronger you are, the more you belong. Now, don't keep being wrong. But we've got grace that's amazing. You can be forgiven. I can be forgiven. And where Marxism gives us statism and socialism and even, even the bankrupt communist regime, the Christian life is about freedom and citizenship. It is for freedom that you have been set free in Christ. And so we value that. We protect that. We fight for our freedom of religion. We fight for our freedom of speech. Because we feel the responsibility and the weight of citizenship. Romans chapter 13 the Bible says, this is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servant, who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. We're called to be citizens in this world, to work to pray for the peace of the city in which we've been sent into exile. But we've been sent into exile with a purpose, to be salt and light, to call out this neo-Marxist, bankrupt, morally vapid belief system that is so prevalent. Ladies and gentlemen, students, believe me when I tell you, there is a thief in our house and we've got to call it out. We've got to name it. And not be afraid to stand up and go, that's wrong. Well, that's moralistic. Everything we do is moralistic. Every law that is ever passed by the biggest humanist in the world is, is a moral judgment. Like, well, Matt, you're kind of coming down hard on Marxism and socialism and communism. I am. I am. Because it is amoral. Look at Russia, China, Cambodia, Venezuela. Just in the last century, more than 110 million people murdered because of this belief system. That didn't even count Nazi Germany. We always talk about, what about the Holocaust? And the Holocaust was horrific. That was 11 million people. Marx and his belief system led to the deaths of over 110 million people. And don't believe the lie that it could never happen here. Because it could. Unless you and I are salt and light. I love the song that we sang earlier. Graves into gardens. I searched the world, but it couldn't fill me. Man's empty praise and treasures that fade are never enough 
Then you came along and put me back together, and every desire is now satisfied here in your love. Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 says, For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. It is in Christ that we are made whole and complete and full. This is the hope of the world and the hope of my life. This is who we are and what we do as the church, the bride of Christ, as we point people to Jesus. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. These are deep, deep, shark-infested waters that we're wading around in today, swimming around in. But Jesus, but Jesus is sufficient. He's enough. If you're here today and you've never stepped into a relationship with Christ, you may be a Republican, you may be a Democrat, you may be an anarchist. There's room for you at the foot of the cross. There's room for you in the love, grace, and truth of Jesus. The Bible says that when Jesus died on the cross, he did that for anyone who would believe. In John chapter 3, it says, so that anyone who believes in him would never die but would have eternal life. Yes, eternal life includes when we leave this life, but it also begins right here and right now. The life that is truly life, the Bible says. If you'd like to begin that, then we invite you to pray just right where you are. Just right where you are, maybe online, maybe here in the room. Just pray. Just say silently right where you are. Just say this to God. Jesus, I need you. I need you. And so I confess my sin to you, holding nothing back in order to receive your forgiveness, your grace, and your truth. Jesus, I will follow you. In this moment, you are my Lord, my authority. And I will trust you more than I trust myself. I pray this prayer in your name. Just for a moment as we remain with our heads bowed, if that was your prayer, you need to know a couple of things. Number one, it's a once and for all deal. It's a commitment 
that if you meant from the bottom of your heart, God seals. He guarantees forever. So you don't have to pray that prayer again. You don't have to make sure that it took next week or tomorrow. You can know that Jesus Christ's death and resurrection is sufficient eternally for you. And as a church, we want to help with what's next. This is a beginning for you. And so I want to ask you, first of all, as what's next, as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed for just a moment, would you just raise your hand? Just, just raise your hand and hold it up high in the air for a moment. As a physical statement of the spiritual commitment that you're making. And know that as a family of faith, we're with you. We love you and we want to help with what's next. And our family tradition around here is that you can just go ahead and put your hands down, but we're going to put our hands together to tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.